0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, happy uh, Thursday of the second week of Easter. Happy Easter, J.D. Christ is risen. Happy Easter to you. Christ is risen indeed, is not Is he not? Uh, so how are you doing, man? Uh, Well, we don't have time for all that. We've got a lot to talk about and not a lot of time. Okay. Okay. Where do you want to start?
1: Uh, Well, I guess we could start with one of the more impressive homiletical performances I've seen in a long time, which took place today. Today being Thursday when we're recording.
0: And what would that be, Ed? Was that
1: a Mass at your parish or something? No, this was the live-streamed um, Farewell and Thanksgiving Mass of Bishop Heppner. Oh,
0: the live-streamed fi- the live Farewell and Thanksgiving Mass of Bishop Hepner. Yeah, we could talk about that, but I think in order to do that, we need to rewind a couple of days. So let's do that. It's Tuesday now. Ed, can you believe what just happened? Um... Uh... Yes and no. Bishop Hepner, the first bishop uh, in the U.S. to be investigated under the auspices of Vost Estes Lex Mundi, has submitted his resignation at the request of the Roman pontiff, Pope Francis, the vicar of Christ on earth and servant of the servants of God. Uh,
1: yes, yes, he did. Uh, he submitted his resignation, which was accepted on... Tuesday, that's the day that we are in the rewinding. Okay, I, yeah. uh, this, I'm, I'm, I'm lost in the, in the season. I rewound, time. I
0: rewound us back, remember?
1: Right. Um...
0: Okay, so on Tuesday, Bishop Hepner. Bishop Michael Hebner the bishop of Crookston, Minnesota, announced his uh, resignation, which the Pope had requested. After we have been calling it an 18-month, but when I looked at the timeline, actually a 20-month process of investigation uh, into allegations that he uh, essentially—you um, might make a civil analog of obstructing justice—essentially that he failed to fulfill some obligations that he had, and at the same time. Um, did or omitted things which impeded the course of justice
1: with regard to allegations of clerical sexual abuse. What's the deal there, Ed? What happened? Bishop Hoepner has been accused of doing several things over a period of years. He's accused of failing to inform civil authorities of accusations of clerical sexual abuse. He's accused of having to uh, take seriously or react canonically, uh, as prescribed by law, to the same accusations. He's also accused, uh, in at least one instance, of sitting down with a man who was a candidate for orders, for ordination Mm -hmm. in his diocese. And basically saying to him, well, if you'd like to be ordained, it would really be helpful if you dropped and recanted your accusations that you were sexually abused by a priest as a teenager.
0: Now, that was the implication. What the bishop said is you ought to re- you ought to recant this allegation. And the bishop claims that the man wanted to recant the allegation, although the man says otherwise. And the implication was that the man would not be ordained a deacon uh, I- unless he did so. Yes, and there was another implication too, because that man, his name is Ron Vosick. I've gotten to know Ron pretty well over the past few years. Ron Vosick has a son who's a priest, a priest named Father Craig Vosick. And the implication, uh, as Ron understood it, was that if you and Father Craig don't want to have a hard time in this diocese, it's time for you to recant this allegation. Which came at a time when the diocese of Crookston, like several other dioceses, was under court order to sort of manifest and provide a, a whole no, a, a whole lot of records. The reason for that that urging to recant, which ultimately ended in Ron Vowsic signing a letter recanting the allegation, saying that, and then later saying he'd been coerced to do so. The reason f- for all of that was, um, uh, as best as it seems, um, possibly a concern that um, it might appear as though Bishop Hepner had not done anything to investigate the allegation of clerical sexual abuse that Ron Vasek had made in 2011. And why Although might bishop... it appear that way, J.D.? <laughs> well, it might appear that way uh, be- because there was not, no record because of he Bishop didn't Heppner do anything. doing anything. He hadn't done anything. But Bishop Hepner says that the reason he didn't do anything is because Ron Vasek said he wanted to keep it private. Now, here's the problem. Both civil law in Minnesota and canon law um, do not allow a bishop or a priest or anyone who receives an allegation... Uh, barring certain limited circumstances, anyone who receives an allegation of clerical sexual abuse to do nothing because a person says, oh, I, I, I want to keep it private. If a bishop has knowledge that one of his priests is accused of clerical sexual abuse, he has to act on that knowledge, both by reporting it to civil authorities and acting on it canonically. And Bishop Hepner didn't do that. Now, that's not the only thing that Bishop Hepner didn't do, but that's certainly one of them.
1: That's certainly, I'd say, the marquee event. Um, Indeed. Indeed. Anyway, so he, following this 20-month investigation, which was conducted by Archbishop Bernard Hebda of Minneapolis-St. Paul, who is himself, um, I'm going to say, the most qualified canon lawyer currently serving as a diocesan bishop in the United States?
0: I think generally regarded as the most expert canon lawyer and the most experienced canon lawyer serving as a bishop in the United States.
1: He, I I will go this far. Well... Uh, I will the, go this far. Certainly
0: the most experienced. He has a lot of Vatican experience as a canon lawyer. I mean, I think there are other bishops who are equally regarded as a sort of canonical scholar or a diocesan administrator, but certainly the most canonical experience because Bishop Bishop Hebda has experience working in Rome and the Vatican as a canon lawyer and other things too. Yeah. I,
1: I would go as far as to say that Archbishop Hebda is is on a short list of maybe one or two mm-hmm. uh, that, against that's... whom I would not like to go up in court. <laughs>
0: Is there's only one or two against whom you would not like to go up in court?
1: Yeah, I'd say the rest of them I could probably kick their asses. Wow,
0: Ed, your record must be phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> depends on how
1: you evaluate success.
0: <laughs> That's what I appreciate about you. That, that is what I appreciate about you. Anyway, we're getting off tangent. What's kind of funny here is we didn't do the small talk, and and now we're going on some tangents. No, uh, I don't want to go on tangents. Thing.
1: But anyway, th- so what happened was um, it was announced on Tuesday that the Holy Father has accepted uh, the requested resignation of Bishop Heppner. Um, and... This is, uh, well, this is certainly a conclusion to the investigation uh, conducted under the terms of Fosestes Lux Mundi, which turns two next month. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are, I think it's fair to say, some questions raised by this particular way of resolving the problem, J.D.? Uh, would you like to uh, articulate your questions, or would you like me to articulate mine?
0: Well, so Bishop Hepner resigned on Tuesday at the conclusion of this investigation. Today he offered a, a, a homily at a farewell mass, which was live-streamed. Kind of an interesting move for someone who resigns at the conclusion of uh, an investigation into misconduct and negligence and malfeasance as a bishop. And it, it kind of interesting to me, especially because Bishop Hepner being the first U.S. bishop to be investigated under Vos Estes, the first U.S. bishop to leave office because of Vossesdes, is in a certain way sets the precedent, and so his uh, for what might happen if other bishops are removed from office under same. So his decision today to offer a kind of a mass of Thanksgiving, uh, at which he said it's been, uh, at which he said that his time in Crookston has been a real joy and a treat, uh, struck me as something of a surprise. But, you know, that surprise points to something that um, that you and I wrote about yesterday that I think we could talk about now for a little while, which is the challenge uh, in the church, e- even for Bishop Hepner. So Bishop Hepner was investigated. Presumably the investigation found some issues of concern, uh, found some corroboration to the allegations against him. Uh, the Holy Father asked for his resignation and he resigned. Uh, here's the issue. We don't know. There's no clarification. The Diocese of Crookston got no clarification. The Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, which did the investigation, got no clarification. There's no clarity for anyone on what happens now for Bishop Hepner. What is the status of Bishop Heppner? He is officially a retired bishop, but he's a bishop who retired four years early under a cloud of not just suspicion, but substantiated, investigated susp- suspicion. And he's put into this position, we're put into this position, the people of God are put into this position, which I think the church is honestly going to have to address, which is um, he's, he's given the opportunity to resign, I think, for a few reasons. One, because that's kind of the way we do things in the church. Two, because in order for him to be removed, instead of just being investigated, he would have to be like penally tried, canonically tried under the dictates of a, a of a, trial process for bishops that Pope Francis inaugurated. And that hasn't happened. Um, and so uh, as a consequence of that, he's sort of in this no man's land where he is universally thought of to have been, perhaps except in you know uh, at his own house, he's sort of universally thought of to have uh, been um, a bad administrative leader as a bishop. And at the same time, he's not limited in his ministry, he's not suspended. And that puts him in this very weird sort of space uh he's not the only one right i mean so bishop robert finn resigned under a cloud of sort of bad allegations against him in terms of administrative leadership and um, has existed sort of in that weird space. Bishop, archbishop Ninstead, the former archbishop of St. Paul in Minneapolis, actually resigned under allegations of personal misconduct in addition to administrative misconduct. Um, other bishops as well, Bishop Malone, and it leaves them in this weird, weird space. I, I appreciate that the church is moving forward. I think the resignation of Bishop Hepner is a big step forward for accountability in the church because it means Vosestes did something, right? Vosestes did something. But there are still questions about what that means and, and, and how the church will engage with a bishop who has resigned under a situation like this moving forward.
1: I, okay, I, all right, I have mixed, I have mixed feelings because what I want to do, J.D., is make a bold statement of my own assessment. <laughs> and you will immediately push back on it and say that's not fair. So I won't go right pre- ahead. Go no, right no, in. no. I mean, oh, that's good I, content, actually. That's a good show. I agree, but I I want to accept (laughs) preemptively your objection and say it is not that nothing has been done. You are correct. Vos Estes Lux Mundi created this process for the investigation of allegations against a bishop, including of negligence or mishandling or willful obstruction of justice related to accusations of clerical sexual misconduct. That investigation took place. It took place over 20 months. It produced a voluminous report, which was transmitted to Rome Mm -hmm. and appears by all accounts to have triggered... A rather pathetic uh, apology by the bishop in question and also precipitated his resignation. That having been said, No, this isn't progress. This isn't progress at all. Absolutely nothing has happened. And let me tell you what. No, you read out a laundry list of bishops just now who are in the same position. Right, so there's there's room for, there's need, genuine need for improvement, but that doesn't mean what's the point? All we did was have a more formal investigation to arrive at exactly the same result, which is, oh, there's this bishop who did appalling things. Well, we'll just ask him to politely resign and, you know, go into early retirement. Nothing's changed. The result is exactly the same. We had an exhaustive investigation to the, you know, detriment of the, um, people of the diocese of crookston to the poor chancery staff there to say nothing of the toll it's taken on undoubtedly on archbishop hebda who had to schlep through all of this stuff and the result is the guy was handled the handed the pearl handled revolver and the bottle of brandy and told to do the decent thing exactly the way everything like this has been handled prior to vosestes so tell me please jd what has changed that that so yes it's
0: it, yes um <laughs> There are there are some there are some cases of bishops who were asked to resign previous to this um, after investigations, right? So in a certain way, you say what has changed? Nothing. Bishops resign. They go. They move on. There's no criminal trials. There's no systematic accountability. I, I agree. I agree that there needs to be. There's not that, even any shame. I, the I man agree threw there, himself a no, going away I, party. I concur with that too. I agree that there needs to be uh, uh, the second part of an investigation, which is a trial, right? So in the criminal justice system, there are the police. Well, I don't know what that law and order thing is, but you know, there are the people who investigate the crimes and then the people who try them. And now we have sort of the first one, the people who investigate the crimes, and then it's like, okay, there's some evidence that you committed a crime, so why don't you quit and everything will be fine. I agree that that is not sufficient in itself. Uh, I, I agree that that is not sufficient in itself, but I think it is ludicrous to say that nothing has changed when there is a process for investigation. So those ones that happened in the past were ad hoc, right? The Finn thing was ad hoc, the Nineset thing was ad hoc. Even the Malone thing was ad hoc and came as a result of all this huge amount of public pressure. There is now a mechanism by which... Do you think
1: the investigation in Crookston came as a result of public pressure? I think it did
0: come as a result of public pressure, but it came more formally as a result of someone, I presume Ron Vosick, though I haven't asked him, as a result of someone's call to the Metropolitan to say... I would like, I accuse the bishop of this, and um, I accuse the bishop of this, and I would like to see an investigation and then a process um, by which this happened. And the thing about it is, Ed, if it were one, that would be fine. I would agree with you. Nothing at all has changed. But there are, what, five vos estes investigations underway in the United States right now. And if that's true, that there are five vos estes investigations underway in the church right now, that's more than were underway when, when Finn was when Finn resigned, that's more than we're underway when Nine and Pichet resigned, that's more than we're underway even when Malone resigned, that means that there is an acceptance that these things must be done. Now, the next step, I genuinely agree with you, for clarity, and I honestly would say for clarity for bishops who are in this situation, um, for clarity for the church to know how to engage with bishops who are in this situation, for clarity, the next step, and it's an important step, is the trial of people who are suspected to have committed crimes. But you don't get there unless you see that this is, for an institution that can suffer from as much sclerosis as Holy Mother Church can, you don't get to the trials unless you see that this is something.
1: Okay. Let me ask you this. If the Holy Father promulgated a new legal set of norms for the prosecution of bishops for specific canonical crimes (laughs) newly constituted, um, including the things which Bishop Hepner hopner he- has, Heppner, has been accused and presumably found to have committed at least some of. Otherwise, why did he resign and what is he apologizing for? Um, how long a breaking in period do you think it requires before I am allowed to lose my freaking mind that nothing is happening? And it's I'm not saying, a, I think you no, no, can No, 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 I'm asking a sincere question. Yeah, it's, okay. I, Vos has Let to me answer is sincerely. turning to next month. Mm-hmm. How many more years do you think we have to put up with this before we can start to see the results if the Pope... If we,
0: th- had, this is the problem. If Vosestes had turned two and no bishop had, n- nothing had happened with any bishop under investigation, okay. I think you would be able to lose your mind and say, Vosestes is a dead letter. Okay, I think what now, about four under years the why you can't. But four there years. is Como Mandre, right? Which is where you're going. The Holy yes. Father promulgated this norms for trials for bishops four years ago and nothing has happened. Here's what I would say Five years I, ago in June. Whatever it is. Here's what I would say about that. I'm not disagreeing with you that there is a failure to apply the norms of Como e Una Madre when they ought to be applied. All I'm saying is um, that is a distinct thing from your soapbox that nothing has happened here. Something has happened here that—this is just a fundamental disagreement about whether or not you, uh, you're, we're optimists or pessimists, um, and I am willing to to at least concede that something has happened here that isn't happening before. Namely, there's like five Osestes investigations in the U.S. right now. We know about them. We, we broke them. The Apostolic Nunity of the United States of America called me up on the telephone because he was angry that we reported about one of them. I mean, we that's happening. And okay. it's a development. It's so much of a development that the apostolic nuncio of the United States of America is mad about it. He was mad. Uh, if, if you don't know, because you weren't on the telephone call, Ed and I reported— I was there. <laughs> Ed and I reported one time last year in a different lifetime and a different iteration of our own professional existence. Um, Ed and I reported that uh, a California bishop named Bishop Oscar Cantu is under investigation under the norms of Vos Lux Mundi for allegations of essentially administrative negligence of a most grave kind. Subsequent to that reporting, the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States of America, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, uh, called me up wanting to know our sources for that for that news report which we made and, uh, and, and essentially expressing considerable, profound, and unreserved dissatisfaction with our willingness t- to report that. Him believing that a Vossessi's investigation should be confidential and me believing that when the church says that she will transparently investigate people, that means that I'm allowed to know about it and write about it. There was a bit of a disagreement, an exchange of words, the conclusion of which I asked His Excellency to pray for me, and he promised that he would. Nevertheless, things are happening, and they're happening so fast that the culture hasn't even caught up. And you okay. can tell that because Archbishop Beer was ticked off that we wrote down something that they promised they would do transparently.
1: A, a word on the culture, J.D. <laughs> um, so as you mentioned, uh, it is very much the institutional mindset of the church typified by His Excellency Archbishop Christophe Pierre, Apostolic Minister to the United States, that looks Luxmundi investigations into bishops are things that should be done discreetly, not publicly disclosed, indeed. not oh, reported indeed. on. Okay. Um, and the, at least as you said, the example set by the first concluded one, actually it's the second concluded one because I think Archbishop or Bishop Gugliamoni of uh, Oh, concluded, Charleston. yes.
0: The Vosestes investigation to Bishop Gugliamoni, which was an allegation of personal sexual misconduct,
1: concluded... With a with a
0: resolution that there was no foundation for the allegation. Yes. I
1: believe. Okay, yeah. so but again, the, the the attitude seems to be that these investigations should not be fodder for public knowledge or, or comment. Um, that when someone is found to have committed, delix under this, uh, this investigation in the course of this investigation, that they should be encouraged to, uh, step aside quietly go off into retirement and that there shouldn't be any nasty canonical penal trial and that everyone should just sort of say well we don't want the scandal of a public penal process and make this go away this is exactly how the u.s bishops handled clerical sexual abuse allegations in the 1970s that is exactly how we got here only we're now just saying well we'll treat bishops today like we treated priests in the 70s and that'll be fine well i don't that's not progress jd that's that's regression we're
0: going I back. I don't think that's what—that's certainly not what I'm saying, and I think you know that. I know but it's I'm not what you're saying. It's what, what I'm, I'm saying. No, but but you're you're suggesting that that's my perception of progress. I don't think that that's—I I, I think if you are not recognizing—and again, what are we doing here? We're just going back and forth about our own take on something else. Um, I, I think if you are not recognizing, however, that the significance of the fact that five U.S. bishops are under investigation right now by— of compulsion of the Holy Father, by a decree of the Holy Father, and that we're in a position to know that. Now, we know that.
1: <laughs> we're not in a position to know that we're not because a, we the know church because is being transparent. We're in a position we, we, to know, know that, that we're because we're nosy bastards, bastards and never yeah. leave it alone.
0: We know that because of hard reporting. But at the very least, that we know that that is happening. Um, it is a step forward from, say, for example the you know, quote-unquote investigation of McCarrick in the 90s, which was essentially Cardinal O'Connor sort of being asked to ask around and then say everything's fine, right? I mean, people gave get depositions in this thing. A retired judge oversaw the investigation of Heppner. That is, whether it's sufficient progress or not, complete progress or not, um, transparent progress or not, that is some element of progress towards a culture of accountability, transparency, and integrity on these issues in the life of the Church although I would agree with you entirely that there are further
1: steps to make that are of critical importance. I have no reservations and no axe to grind against the integrity and thoroughness of the Vosestis investigation that was conducted here. By all accounts, it was exhaustive, it was extremely well done, and I have absolutely no bat to swing against that. I think from all accounts that I've heard, Archbishop Hebda did a bang-up job and behaved in exactly the kind of way that we would hope and expect someone to behave when given a, a job like this to do, my point is what you are calling progress. If you transpose this into a sort of police procedural like Law and Order, and at the end of it the cops did their job and produced reams of evidence and testimony, handed it over to the prosecutors, they went, "Meh, he resigned. So what?" You wouldn't I don't call disagree. That progress. I you don't. Di- call it progress. I, would
0: call it progress. I would only call it progress if the standard were that the police didn't used to investigate. That's what you're not willing to concede. You're not willing to concede. You're not willing to concede where things were. I'm and not willing can't to. Measure, cons- I'm not You can't to measure it- progress against where things should be without also measuring it against where they were. Okay, this is the this- whole problem. The reason why this is important. For five minutes, I've been sitting here thinking, "Why are we fighting about this?" And this is why this is important, Ed. The reason why this is important. The reason why this is important, Ed, and it is, is because there is a, a there is an, a growing inclination among Catholics, practicing Catholics in this country, and I'm not saying you're one of them, but there is a growing inclination among practicing Catholics in this country to. Um, insist that the leadership of the church, the bishops of the church, their own bishop, everyone in the Holy See uh, can't be trusted, isn't doing anything, is acting nefariously, have been infiltrated by masons and communists and pinkos and whomever else, and to insist that no one in the church's hierarchy can be trusted. And they do that. I didn't say that. I know. I did not say that. But they do that. The the growing cadre of voices insisting upon those things, which I honestly think are harming, infecting, (laughs) infiltrating um, the the life of the church and the the universal call to holiness, Um, the growing cadre of voices in the church who do that, do that by a sort of selective application and a sort of selective comparison and judgment. And the only way for us to combat that is to be fair. Things were Things were this way, where nothing was investigated, or a woman, a, a, a religious sister. This is in the McCarrick report. A religious sister, uh, of, who was broadly respected, calls up the apostolic nuncio and says, "I think McCarrick's screwing around with seminarians." And you know, he calls one other bishop who says, "Oh, that guy's just that lady's just trying to seem important or be self-important," and that's the end of it. So that's where things were not very long ago, and where things are now is that this fellow resigned, and where things ought to be, according to the law of the church, is that this fellow is tried, canonically tried. That's down the road and it should be. But if we don't see that there's a difference between blowing off the religious sister and this fellow resigning, I think we're potentially growing in a kind of cynicism that will harm our relationship to the church. And I don't mean you, I mean broadly.
1: Maybe you think that's Pollyannish, I don't know. No, no, I'm giving what you've said careful consideration. (laughs) Okay, I do not accept and I have never said and I would never say that there are no, there are no actors who can be trusted or are men of integrity. I know, I know, you don't art. think that. I know. I'm just saying it out loud, mm-hmm. and I absolutely, for example, believe Archbishop How to be one of them—a person um, of integrity, person of integrity, someone who takes his job seriously, someone who does what needs to be done when it's put in front of him. Yeah. Okay. Now, interestingly, I reported
0: another story this I week. Know, I know. <laughs> yeah. In which Bishop Hebb, just so that in case they don't know, in which Archbishop Pohab does accused at least of insufficiently handling another situation put in front of him. But we're talking about this situation, so okay. I hear you. I hear,
1: okay, um, I am not prepared to draw conclusions of progress in terms of the overall integrity in which Foseste's investigations are being conducted uh, in this country, let alone globally, on the strength of this one example. One because. The result, which was not, um, again, in the hands of the archbishop who conducted the investigation, that's Rome's deal, so it's not on him, um, because the result was unsatisfactory from a legal standpoint. Two, because, frankly, Archbishop Hebda is almost, in a sense, too credible. I. Well, in I w- other words, they should have had a mediocre
0: metropolitan do the first one so that we could see how it works with the average bear instead of a pretty good bear.
1: Well, I think we're going to see more than a few of those examples because as you said they're currently underway and i will be interested and i would be paying close attention to see if they are as thorough and exhaustive and yeah, as totally conclusive fair. as archbishop hebda's investigation was um but i honestly believe if fosestes didn't exist and the vatican had said to him uh hey we've heard some weird stuff about the diocese of crookston go kick over a few rocks and see what you find i think he probably would have done exactly the same thing as he did I maybe I, but again, just you're asking me why I'm being cynical about this, and um, this is why. And again, the 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 document, the law promulgated by Pope Francis that you referred to earlier, "Como una madre amorevole," uh, which establishes the canonical crimes of obstruction of justice, effectively, and the harm of souls, physical, spiritual. Or otherwise in a diocese by a diocesan bishop, which are to be punished by his removal from office, not his polite resignation, but his penal removal from office is not a year and a half old, it's not two years old, it's turning five in June. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to see a situation like this resolved in a penal process citing Come Madre Moravole. And when you're five years in and you can't find a single example of it being used but you can find multiple examples of where it could have been used and arguably should have been used i have a hard time calling it progress that's all okay well i think there are people who want to see progress in the church i don't think it's just a question of there are a bunch of loudmouth laymen who won't shut up about this i think there are good and holy bishops and priests cardinals in the church who would like nothing more than for this stuff to be given you know, all the power in the world to to carry on. I think there are agents of reform in the church. I think there are good men in leadership positions in the church. I have every reason to think that they are going to continue pushing uh, to see the kind of practical reforms that have already been enacted being brought to bear in these situations. And I hope they will. And I have nothing but uh, faith and support and encouragement for them as they do so. I'm, I'm not prepared to say, hooray, we've got a result yet. Because again, where did this end up? It ended up with a bishop in the pulpit of his cathedral, throwing himself a retirement party and saying, y'all have got a bishop who really loves you and me. Oh, well, yeah, he loves everyone in his diocese, except, you know, people he might pressure into recanting accusations of <laughs> sexual abuse. You know, where's the love there?
0: Indeed. I I certainly understand what you're saying. Okay, listen. What do, practically, I mean, I certainly understand what you're saying, <laughs> Comma. I don't necessarily agree. Um, it's not that I don't agree that that's a problem. It's just that I think it's a semantic disagreement, but I think it's one that matters, which is to say, I think that we have to recognize the good where it comes, but this happens in my marriage too. So, well, (laughs) I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about my marriage in the podcast, but, um, uh, if you are a parent and if you parent with another parent, you know, one is father and one is mother perhaps, and you have three children perhaps, um, there, I noticed this among parents, there are different styles, I suppose, but, uh, There are those who sort of say, um, well, the kid didn't do what they were supposed to do, period. And there are those who sort of say, yeah, but they got closer to it than last time. And are we going to, you know, uh, reward them from that in order to incentivize, you know, sort of a directional tendency towards good behavior? Or are we going to withhold the reward until they have entirely fulfilled um, our expectations, and I, I'm not sure that there's one that's right. There's certainly two different perspectives on that in my house, but and I'm not sure that there's one that's right, and I'm not sure that I have seen either of them be, uh, you know, entirely effective. Although, if I'm being honest, probably the the one that's a, a little more stringent is more effective. But the reason why I think the analogy is apt is because the church's culture, the church, the culture of ecclesiastic uh, 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 of sort of eccles, institutional ecclesiality, is not unlike, uh, in some ways my experience with the culture of young people. And there's a question of sort of whether or not you want to sort of incentivize them for every little good thing that they do, or whether you want to hold out until they do the whole of the good thing. Um, And I beer more in the direction of let's recognize the good in order to incentivize more good, even in order to have more um, traction when calling for more good. Now, you may Uh, look at it differently and perhaps that's why we work well together
1: i i I applaud your commitment to a sort of aggiornamento. uh, (laughs) i would say it's my i would say it's my amoris letizia perspective on all of good i happen to you know to play daddy in this uh in this little (laughs) scenario (laughs) please don't say that (laughs) it's weird now oh yeah now it's weird um I happen to think that no, you don't get points for getting slightly closer there when what we're talking about is not facilitating clerical sexual abuse. I, I understand that. This is I, not I, horseshoes I, or hand grenades. There's no points for close. I, I understand. The law is written down. It's perfectly clear. It's not that complicated. It's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty tight set of laws. Just apply the laws.
0: All right. Well, okay. There we are, folks. Two different perspectives on this. I think it's probably why we work well together. There we are. A joy and a treat. A, heavy. a joy and a treat, says Bishop Hepner, of his time in Crookston, Minnesota. He said it was a delight every day to come to work because of the good people in the Chancery. And I do want to say, I mean, I do I do want to be, I, I, I want to be fair. So I want to, I want to read the uh, apologetic part of his homily as well. Yes, this was powerful. I want Moving. to be fair. Yeah. I certainly apologize to you and everyone, as I have apologized to our Holy Father, for any failures that are mine as governing as, as bishop, at the same time I hold dear the many good things and blessings that God has showered upon us these past years. Wow! There we are. He dug deep I, for that one. I have been working on this story. I, I've been working on the diocese of Crookston since 2018. I started working the diocese, working on stories related to the diocese of Crookston, probably in July of 2018. It's been a while. There are a lot of good people in the Diocese of Crookston, I hope for the best. You know, it'll be really interesting to see what kind of bishop they get to and what kind of whether there's a consultative process, because this—Heppner sets a precedent. You know, Heppner is the first guy out the door, and that sets a precedent for what will happen next. That's why the Farewell Mass is national, a national story instead of a, a Crookston story, because Hepner sets a precedent. And I don't think that there will be a broader degree of consultation with regard to the appointment of the next Bishop of Crookston than there is in, in other any other dioceses, but— I, I would suggest perhaps there might be some value to a broader
1: consultation in this case. i you know he's he said that he wants to go somewhere warmer, a warmer climate than than snowy Minnesota, and uh, you know I wish him luck with his Barker lounger or golf game or
0: oh you know what I got distracted but I was talking before about sort of what does come next honestly and this is an interesting question because there are no because there are no restrictions for all the reasons that we just talked about no penal trial da 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 and also just no clarity from the Congregation for Bishops on this, it'll be interesting to see what happens where he retires. Uh, In other words, let's say Bishop Hepner goes, he says he wants to go somewhere warmer. I, I don't know if Minnesotans go to Arizona or Florida. I don't know kind of where that divide is, but let's say he heads on down to sunny Florida. Let's say, to make things super interesting, he retires to the town of Ave Maria, Florida. He and his sister with whom he intends to retire get a condo down there in Ave Maria, and he'd like to help out in the oratory of Ave Maria, Florida. Let's say they have need of someone to do confirmations with regularity, so there's some desire for him to do that. There's no restriction on that. There's no clarity on that. There's no nothing from the Holy See that says what he can or can't do, and that puts the rector of that church into a real bind because it's he who has to make a decision that will get a lot of attention— and uh and a lot of traction and for which his bishop you know he'll probably call his bishop first but that puts that bishop into a real bind too you want to say something
1: i do um just one thing i want to pick up because you said it a couple of times now that there's no clarity there is clarity jd there's perfect clarity. He is a retired bishop. He's right. the Bishop yeah. Emeritus of Crookston. There's no ambiguity about his status. There's sure. no question mark over it. It's perfectly clear. He can behave and function exactly as any other normally retired diocesan bishop. The fact that his name is indelibly linked to scandal and criminal behavior on his part does not lend any question as to what he is legally or ministerially able to do. There's no, this is there's probably, no ambiguity right. here.
0: Uh, agreed entirely. The reason why I say there's no clarity is because if the Holy See has a different expectation than that, they have not communicated it, um, and the Church, the institutional leadership of the Church, especially, has not like sort of expressed or thought very much about what to do
1: with um, a scandalous, you know, a scandalous general when he's done being a general. Now. The US you usually conference. head up to the upper peninsula, try and say mass and help out at a parish until the media find out about it. There's a right. firestorm, and then and it then becomes a thing, right? Away. So
0: there needs to be more clarity than that, right? There absolutely needs to be more clarity than that. Otherwise, he does. He has the status of a retired bishop, and people will be aggrieved about that. Yeah. He'll want, you know, he'll want to draw a pension from the diocese of Crookston, and actually probably has a legal right to draw a pension from the diocese of Crookston. And and because the Holy See hasn't explained about that, people will be aggrieved about it. Um, he has a right, actually—well, he doesn't have a right, but the recommendation of the USCCB is that the Diocese of Crookston provide him with a car and uh, car insurance and um, even sort of a modest support for a secretary. That's what's recommended for a retired bishop. But I suspect that if the Diocese of Crookston is paying for the guy to have a secretary, down the road there will be frustration about that, which is precisely to your point why there there are steps that need to be taken beyond that. But i just like to take like about one second to say, wow. This could have gone the other way. Ron Vosick, the victim of the coercion, Ron Vosick, I don't know, three months ago told me that he did not think anything was going to happen. He said, I trust Archbishop Hebda, but as he said to me, I don't trust the guys over there in Rome. I think they're going to sweep this under the carpet. And if nothing else, Ron Vosick feels that he was heard in Rome. And I think that's not nothing.
1: I think that's not nothing. And it's a credit to him. And frankly, I you're going to demure on this, but it's also a credit to you because like you said, you've been working on this for ah. three. No, no. <laughs> I I had never heard of, nor could I find the diocese of Crookston on a map until you started doing this story. It is entirely right across from right across the river from Fargo or snakehead, that kind of area. Sure. But it, it is, I would say, if not entirely, at least in very large, part. certainly not entirely. Maybe I'll, I had a, I a little of bringing yet. it to attention. Okay. God, you're just like my wife. Let me finish the sentence before you tell me Please. I'm wrong. <laughs> God. Okay. It is entirely, or if not entirely, in very large part, because of media coverage of this situation that I feel there was an understanding over at the Congregation for Bishops that the shit was not going to go back in the horse on this one, and there had mm-hmm. to be something done. Mm-hmm. And that this was not just going to go away. Well,. There are
0: a lot of good people there, and I have been glad to be working with them. And I am—I uh, already—I requested a media credential yesterday, and I got it. No, on Tuesday, I requested a media credential on Tuesday, and I got it for uh, the installation of the next bishop of Crookston. So I have my media credential,
1: and I will be there. I'm—I'm I'm pleased. I'm sure you will need to probably pack Arctic wear and <laughs> snow <laughs> it's boots.
0: Just like, it's like—it's like a little bit north of Fargo. You know, it's like between Fargo and Grand Forks, but on the Minnesota side.
1: How do you know if it's between, I mean, like, I'm just assuming that everything in that part of the world is under five or six feet of snow apart oh, from, gosh. you know, the 4th of July weekend. Or flies, you know what happens in... Oh, yeah, they've got, the got like, yeah, when it got, yeah, yeah, yeah fly fishing weather where, you know, they're the size of apples, basically.
0: Well, and I think that the time has come, as it so often does, that we need to talk about Vatican finances and if we can, there's so much to talk about. We have, I'd say, probably uh I'd say we have probably 20 minutes to talk about Vatican finances, 25 minutes maybe if if our listeners are generous to us. I wonder should we start with Ceci Moragna or should we get to
1: Moragna? Are you prepared to talk about your the woman in whom you have a fascination, uh Cecilia Moragna? <laughs> my
0: my my, my my private, my Italian private spy and Slovenian money laundering crush. Am I prepared to talk about her, Cici
1: Moragna? I I hadn't planned to talk about her at all. So if you would like to, I just like saying Cici Maragna, man. I so know. I didn't know. I don't know. Let's, I mean, I don't know. If we said, her just. Have we said real quick, I, I, just I, what's happened I, to her? Let us. Let us. I, I would propose that we make, um, la femme, Cecilia, uh, <laughs> dessert. In, okay. in this, if you would, because... There's got to be a better way to say that. Let's talk, though. Let's
0: start, though, with... Let's start with what's happening. Okay, so we're going to talk about Vatican finances. If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you know that we like to talk about the Vatican finances. And uh, some things have happened, right? So um, we talked about England a little while ago, your home and native land. And um, and then was it, you know, the English judge and all oh, that. We oh, talked yeah, about that? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it this week, Ed, that an Italian court issued an arrest warrant for Jean Luigi the i i don't think we have to keep saying businessman <laughs> the wise guy the the wise i mean he he is he's he's he exudes wisdom the wise guy at
1: the center of all of this he's well yeah uh, yeah okay so so what happened was uh as as you mentioned is he a made man Ed? first no. of all the, i don't know what no. a made man is nope. and second of all is he one of them no jean luigi is not a made man jean luigi tortsi if if you were looking to sort of have a, a sort of Sopranos-esque um, analog for the, the, the guys um, around the Vatican financial scandal, um, Gianluigi Torzi is not a made man. Gianluigi Torzi is the guy that all the made men send between each other to run errands and messages and occasionally out to get a sandwich and a pack of cigarettes. Um, oh, he is, okay. he is by no, means you could not call convincingly Gianluigi Torch the brains of anything. Um, so no, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, he's in, you're correct. He's at the center of all of this, but don't mistake, um, don't mistake, uh, latitude and longitude for altitude with him. Okay. Fair enough. That's well said. That's it. That's, that's Did you just come up with that? I did on the fly. That was totally on the fly. Hmm. Mm, well done. Okay. Um, so what happened this week was, okay, so we, we talked before about how in in March, a UK judge threw out a court order that had basically frozen certain assets of tortsies uh, in the UK at the request of Vatican prosecutors, basically saying, you guys have presented zero evidence that I find compelling that this guy is, you know, going to dissolve these assets to make them unrecoverable if you needed to find them later. And also, by the way, I think your entire case that, as you have presented it, that he's part of a conspiracy to defraud the Vatican is nonsense, because it seems to me fairly evident in addition to other things that everyone at the Secretary of State from Monsignor Alberto Perlasca to Archbishop Parra to Cardinal Pietro Peroline approved line by line everything Torzi did. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And you've all gotten bent out of shape about it at the end of it. And that's not fraud. So deal with it. Uh, In the course of that UK uh, appeal that Torzi had lodged against this uh, asset freeze, he made some fairly lurid accusations about uh, various uh, other businessmen, involved in this Enrico Crasso uh a man named Fabrizio Tirabassi, who's been a particular source of fascination for me for a couple of years now who is was remains who knows Mm -hmm. um the lay official who oversees administration of investments at the secretary of state and who uh we could call a business partner of Gianluigi Torzi because he was a director Mm -hmm. of one of his companies at one point uh Gianluigi Torzi uh said to the UK judge that Mr. Tirabazzi, who, again, I want to stress, an official at the Vatican Secretariat of State, uh, offered to basically take him out for pizza and prostitutes to conclude day's business. Uh, he accused him, along with Enrico Crasso, of threatening, this is Torzi's, uh life and family, uh, in an attempt to extort him for payouts and control of investments and things. And um, he also said that Mr. Tirabazzi... Habitually boasted of blackmailing Archbishop Piñapara and Cardinal Becciu. So that was a colorful court case that happened Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in March, which we reported on first. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what happened this week was an Italian magistrate issued an arrest warrant for Gianluigi Torzi. uh, Mm -hmm. When I say he issued an arrest warrant, I'll be clear. There has been, Torzi has already been arrested in the Vatican. He was released on Mm -hmm. bail and he basically skipped bail. Mm -hmm. He never posted the bond he was supposed to, and he just blew Right. This is not a Vatican arrest warrant. This is an Italian arrest warrant. This is an Italian arrest warrant. An Italian judge has issued an arrest warrant for the arrest of Gianluigi Torzi so that he can be prosecuted in the Republic of Italy. And the Italians
0: have, as opposed to the Vatican City State, which doesn't have any experience actually prosecuting anyone, which, really quick aside— there are canonical trials that happen, like let's say under the auspices of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or try. You know, there are court proceedings that happen at the Roman Rota or the Apostolic Signatura, um, and those are sort of in the canonical realm. Then there are the trials of the Vatican City State. Except there aren't any. The, the prosecutors of the Vatican City State don't have any experience, actually prosecuting crimes or have limited experience. So like I said don't have any, and then you made a face.
1: So you say something. Well, no, it is the the current um, chief. President. Oh, the trial of Pius X. Uh, okay, no, what but I was... The Paisa Seminary. So there's that. No, Pius X himself. Uh, but what I was going <laughs> to... The current uh, promoter of justice, chief prosecutor of Vatican City, is a man named Alessandro Didi, who actually was is a former Italian prosecutor who has some experience in prosecutions, indeed mob prosecutions. Uh, but the
0: point is, in terms of in the Vatican City state, what's happening is novel, whereas the Italians have considerably more sort of experience doing this on a regular basis.
1: They, they certainly have more resources to put towards yeah, this okay. and the Garda financia of the Italian Republic is rather more equipped and experienced in conducting criminal investigations into um, all sorts of weird and wonderful financial crimes than is for example the Vatican gendarmes mm-hmm. uh, that is certainly true but anyway so what's what's interesting here is this judge has issued a, uh, an arrest warrant for Tory. Uh, he has said that he is satisfied that there is considerable evidence against Torsi of tax evasion, fraud, embezzlement, money laundering, and would like kindly for him to attend uh, his court in Rome at his earliest mm-hmm. convenience. Uh, he also placed an injunction against one of Torsi's business partners, uh, a man named Giacomo Capizzi, who we will ignore for the purposes of this podcast because it would be too much of a rabbit hole to go down. But suffice to say, he's not unknown in yes, Vatican indeed. financial scandals. Now, the issuance of this warrant is very interesting for a number of reasons. The first and most obvious reason is the Vatican have been swinging and missing uh, in, in achieving uh, international court cooperation. As we mentioned, they, they struck out with this UK judge on the asset freeze and basically face planted in front of the UK judge in the process. Uh, he was pretty withering of his assessment of their case. Uh, they have similarly uh, had to withdraw uh a petition for the extradition of Cecilia Maragna uh, mm-hmm. in January, and it was widely understood that the reason they withdrew that extradition request was because it was about to be denied by a Milan appeal court. Um, they have they have not they have not done well when going to court in foreign jurisdictions. Now it looks as though the Italian prosecutors have said, "All right, we gave you guys first bite of the cherry on this one, um, but you couldn't you know put your pants on, so we're going to take it from here." Thank you very much. And if I were Someone like Gianluigi Torsi, I would be very nervous because while well, you might think it's fun in games to spend ten days in a Vatican jail cell before skipping bond, uh, and that's just a great story to tell uh, your friends, it's no joke if the Guarda Finanziaria are telling the UK police, "Hey, we've got a warrant here for his arrest. Would you mind awfully serving this on him and uh, returning him to us, please?" Because that—that's no joke. You—you uh, you can do long stretches in in Italian prison for financial crimes. So there's that. This is uh, th- this is a big deal in that sense, but much more interestingly and much more importantly for me, uh, which is you know I mean and to their credit, I want to give it where it's due. Um, other other media outlets, even some members of the Vatican press corps, managed to notice <laughs> this this arrest warrant being issued. That some of them managed to struggle through a whole four hundred words. Um, I'd like to say
0: that there are a few members of the Vatican press corps whom I respect immensely, most especially our former colleagues, Hannah Brockhaus and Courtney Grogan. I just would like to ensure clarity on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. okay, yeah, no, now no. you can continue with your excoriation of the rest of them about whom right. with whom I have uh, for whom I
1: have a little, very little time. Anyway, and um, what they didn't notice, oh well, um, but we did, and which is an immensely big deal is that buried in the judgment, uh, this 14 page, Uh, Indictment, basically signed off by this Italian magistrate, is the observation that uh, Vatican prosecutors have presented a case to him which he is satisfied with, with, which that the entire Secretariat of State acted beyond its legal remit in the London property deal; that it did not have the proper authority to, for example, buy a London building for some three hundred and fifty million euros.
0: I'd say this again because it's really important. So where we, where the investigation has all along seemed to be an investigation into like. Did the extort the Holy See? Was Tiberbasi kind of involved? Was was he? Uh, did he have a prearranged deal with Mincioni? Actually, there's a much bigger issue sitting right there in the Italian
1: paperwork. Exactly, and it is this. And this, is, is, and, say it again. And this is what we've been claiming must have been the case all along. Because, let's say again what the issue is, so that everybody hears it. Okay. The issue here is that Vatican prosecutors are apparently contending that the entire investment process in the London property deal exceeds and is beyond the legal capabilities of the Secretary of State. Specifically, that they are not allowed to acquire property in this way, that it's the exclusive competence of APSA, and that there is no paperwork for this deal that went to the Council for the Economy for approval, and that they used charitable funds, that is Peter's pence to do so and they are prohibited from doing that.
0: Now, so that means that if it can be proven that Vatican that that Secretary of State officials like Cardinal Peroline, for example, asked APSA to help them secure a loan for some of this investment work, or signed
1: off on contracts with Gianluigi Torzi, That all of that was illegal. So there's a, there's a couple of things here. Um, I'm not saying a blanket yes to that because there are some things I quibble with there. But
0: yes, with an if or no with a but. Which one do you prefer? Uh, no with a but.
1: Yeah, I knew, because you're a glass-half-empty kind of a guy. Go ahead. Well, I'm also a pedant on these things, but, you know, I can't (laughs) help it. I'm in too deep now. Uh, The reason that this is so interesting is this. All the way along, the tension in this case has been they've been going after guys like Gianluigi Torzi and, uh, you know, officials at the Vatican Secretary of State saying... There was this bad deal that the Vatican lost a lot of money on, and it's, you know, we're going to take you down. And there have been the sort of superficial accusations of extortion and embezzlement and fraud against Tortsi and others, and there's been some evidence presented for that that is on its face and in isolation, I would say, fairly compelling. There is a recorded conversation between Gianluigi Torzi and Vibrizio Tirabassi and Enrico Crasso in which Tortsi does appear to be at least... Uh, leaning strongly in the direction of appearing to extort the Vatican for mm-hmm. a couple of million. Yeah. So there, there's been that. Now, Torzi's defense right the way along the line, including to the London judges, you can't possibly accuse me of fraud or extortion in any of this, because everything I did, the Secretary of State signed off on. Right. I have the documents. I've got the letters. Here's mm-hmm. Monsignor Perlaska's letter from Archbishop Pina Parra saying... He has full legal authority to act with power of attorney in this matter on behalf of the Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. And there was also in front of the London court produced documents that from the Vatican Prosecutor's Office that said Cardinal Peraline had in writing approved the whole thing step by step, which if true means that you can't say that the Secretary of State was hoodwinked because they approved it all. And Tortsy therefore can't be accused of fraud because it was all right there in black and white and they signed off on it. So that has been a sort of lurking question. Now, at the same time, Raffaele Mencioni, who is the businessman in London, who managed the 200 million of borrowed euros that the Secretary of State deposited with him and managed this in investments, quote unquote, um, including the London property and eventually sold them the whole London building. This guy has filed lawsuits against the secretary of state and courts in London seeking, um, declarative relief that he acted in good faith with the Vatican and that, you know, he did nothing wrong. And their deal that as far from his end, selling them the London building and everything else was fine. Now, yeah. the, the mystery to me about all of this has been, and I, I've talked to people close to Mincioni. Um, I've examined the lawsuit documentation and his contention and the obvious fear he has that he's filing for this preemptive relief, um, from the UK court is that the Vatican was going to somehow try and declare the entire deal null and void and try and get all their money back off of right. hundreds of millions of euros. And I thought, well, this is, a, like, he can't seriously think the Secretary you worried of about State that? Why would do be? that because the Secretary of State did all of this. They've got all this paperwork. Now, here's the problem, both for the Secretary of State and Mincioni, which turns this whole thing up to, you know, way past 11, which is if Vatican prosecutors are now saying, no, 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 we're not saying that Tortzi defrauded the Secretary of State. We're saying that the conspiracy is the entire Secretary of State acting in concert with Mincioni and Tortzi and Crosso defrauded the Holy See by acting in concert and knowing the outside of the Secretary of State's legal authority. Then the whole deal can be ruled illegal. and. Yeah you know, God knows if you can get the money back. I don't know. But that does create a serious legal problem for everyone involved. And it is tantalizingly possible, at least from what I've seen, because there are, you know, we know that this is a problem. We know this is a legal problem. We know that this was flagged at the time that these deals were going down uh, back in 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, because we've spoken to people at the Secretariat for the Economy who said, yeah, We detected these loans being taken out from these dodgy Swiss banks. We detected this borrowed money, which Peter's Pence and charitable funds on deposit was being used as collateral against. We detected these loans being invested with Mincioni and in the London building and everything. And we said, this is not, we detected them trying to keep them off the Vatican ledgers, and that this was a problem. And we flagged it with the Council for the Economy and they didn't do anything about it. So we have the Vatican's own internal financial watchdog saying, yeah, yeah. This this was a problem. We've been saying this is a problem for years. We've been saying this is a legal problem for years. Yeah. Um, what's changed is in 2019, for whatever reason, when Cardinal Periline went knocking on the door, uh, well, not literally knocking on the door, you wrote him a letter, uh, of the president of the IOR, A, not the, but A, Vatican Bank, saying, I want your bank to pony up a loan of 150 million euros, no questions asked, because we just bought this building and it came with a big mortgage and I want to refinance it, so do it. Um, This triggered a complaint to the Vatican authorities and started this whole investigation in Rome. For whatever reason, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And this whole thing is now unwinding back in time. And it's fascinating to watch. Now, we've documented and we have covered and we have explained in some of the stuff we've written this week that this is not the first time that Cardinal Periline and uh, his former deputy, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, have been caught uh, monkeying around with the financial institutions of the Holy See to cover shady deals and to strong arm loans out of uh, Vatican institutions that are not qualified to give those loans or should not be giving those loans, and we we had them publicly admit to us. We had Cardinal Parolin say to us at one point, "Yeah, I did all of that. So what?" Basically, he said right. it was it was done with good intentions and, and honest means. Now, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And which, you know, I, I'm not here to second-guess Cardinal Periline's intentions. I would question the, the quote-unquote, honest means because it seems in clear violation of Vatican financial law, which we pointed out to him at the time. And, I mean, his secretary couldn't quite communicate in an email, but that was effectively, you know, the response. So who's going to get indicted, Ed? So this is the interesting question. Um, I don't know. I... At the moment,
0: it seems to me that we're on a sort of a merry-go-round or in musical chairs to see who, or I suppose really we're in a game called Let's Make a Deal to see who's going to make a deal first. Yeah, I and think that's going a to lot shape what the trials are going
1: to be. Yeah, and it looks very much like um, uh, two former officials of the Secretary of State, um, Monsignor Perlaska and Monsignor Carlino, are cooperating with Vatican investigators and in that they have provided some useful information to them. Uh, I think Tortzi's opportunity to play Let's Make a Deal probably. Torzi probably is past that point,
0: don't you yeah, think? Yeah, when you... But Tirabasi, maybe.
1: When you skip on, to it, that's probably... Tirabasi is an interesting thing. Now, Tirabasi, the problem with him in all this is, I, I would say on the strength of paperwork I have reviewed uh, of corporate filings and things, and accusations that have been made in a court of law in one jurisdiction or another, Tirabasi is, I, I would argue, the guy most likely to get indicted and most likely to go to jail for a very long time if even part of what's been alleged about him is true. But on the other hand, one thing that the UK judge observed about the Vatican prosecution is they seemed at times to be fighting with one hand behind their back and with a view to minimizing public scandal at the Secretary of State, which I I don't know to what extent that's a. Possible, let alone useful, exercise at this point. But there you go. Now, if Tirabassi is as he has been accused of being, and I want to stress, this is only an accusation, and the accusation was made by Gianluigi Torsi, who is hardly an honest narrator. Um, but Tortsi has claimed that Tirabassi frequently boasted of blackmailing Cardinal Betsu and Archbishop Pignapara. I could see reasons why Vatican officials would not want to put that guy on the stand and say, well, what were you blackmailing them over? And, you know, all that. So that gets messy. Um, On the strength of the fact pattern as we see it and the uh, summary of Vatican prosecutors' thinking and case as presented in the Italian magistrate's decision earlier this week, the guy who ultimately should carry the bag for all of this is Cardinal Periline. Now, whether he's going to or not, I I would be very surprised to see the cardinal secretary of state. Uh, oh, indeed. Questioned under caution, let alone brought into court over, um, you know, serious extra legal financial dealings by the department under his leadership. It's not to say that that isn't what should happen. Um, right. But I I would be surprised to see it happen, although there certainly does seem, at least to me, to be a prima facie case to answer for Cardinal Mm -hmm. Paraline. If these financial transactions made by the Secretary of State are outside of its legal competence and Cardinal Paraline has written uh, personally to approve them step by step, then that is a case to answer. Uh, I don't expect anything to come of it from Cardinal Periline's point of view, simply because we caught him doing this once before with the IDI Hospital, APSA and the Papal Foundation. The Papal and, Foundation, yeah. You know, we we caught him red-handed with his fingers in the cookie jar and right. nothing happened. So yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not I'm not building my hopes up this time. But anyway, it is a it is a the volume has been turned way, way up on this. If this is what the Vatican prosecutors are looking to do, if this is how they are looking to try this case eventually. They are swinging for the fences, and God bless them for their efforts. I am extremely interested to see where it goes from here. Uh, so, so that all happened. Um, just as a quick a quick checkup, uh, we we said earlier that Torzi has accused uh, Tiribasi and Enrico Crosso of trying to extort him and threatening his life and uh, the life of his family. Uh, this week, Enrico Crosso said uh, he was suing Gianluigi Torzi for slander in mm-hmm. Vatican City over these allegations. Um, this is amusing, but I want to be clear, this is Kabuki Theater. <laughs> right, exactly. This is, this is Kabuki Theater. First of all, Torzi didn't make the allegations in Vatican City. He made them in the UK, in front of a UK court. Uh, so why would you... You can't sue someone for something they did in a different jurisdiction. You just that's. But that's the not, other thing is you can't sue someone in a jurisdiction you, you can't go into. Well, so this is the other thing. Um, Gianluigi Torzi's lawyer said if Crosso really has done this, then Torzi will counter-sue in the Vatican because his allegations are all true. Uh, there's absolutely, you know, if, I, if Enrico Crosso suing Torzi in Vatican City is kabuki theater, then, you know. Torti's to- counter-suit is all the more. All the more so because there is an arrest warrant out for Torti in Italy and in Vatican City where he owes right. them $3 million in a bond he never paid. So the idea that right, Torzi is exactly. going to try and sue, Tiro, uh, sue Crosso in Vatican City for slander is hilarious. Um, yeah. I, I would say that uh, Crosso's statement that he's going to sue towards for slander in Vatican City in this sort of theater of doing so actually plays against him and his credibility because if someone accused me of threatening the lives of them and their family, and of trying to extort them over a business deal, and I was a legitimate businessman, and they did so in front of a judge in a country with a functioning, incredible legal system. You better believe I'd be suing them for slander, but I'd be doing it in that country. Yeah. Um. But I somehow suspect that Enrico Crosso is not all that keen on a UK court having jurisdiction over this little spat.
0: Now, Ed, let me ask you this: Do you think? I'm curious what you would say here. Do you think that the emergence of these details? In their existence, what we know, what especially has been in the Italian uh, paperwork for the warrant and et cetera, would you consider that, um, maybe you know where I'm going here, would you consider that to be sort of progress?
1: I do know where you're going. I see what you're trying (laughs) to do here.
0: (laughs) Because I've done it now.
1: Yes. Um, It's progress of a kind, yeah. It's Um, progress
0: of a kind, right? Why? Because even if we don't, let's say that something happened and we didn't get to a trial
1: isn't all of this progress of a kind? This is this no. is actually
0: the thing. No, no. I, oh, man.
1: Here's, yes, I am. I am a consistent man, JD. And if we have this whole <laughs> thing, and if at the end of it. They just kind of shrug and go, well, it's never going to go to trial. We had this investigation and we couldn't make any of it. You know, it's it's just too much scandal. It's just too much effort. You know, Cardinal Betchew's been forced to resign. Um, Tirabasi's been given early retirement. Perlaska's been sent home to his diocese and we're just going to call it a day there. No, that won't be progress. I will say it has all been for naught. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Here's, here's the deal. Well, it probably won't all be for naught because they've started so many... Um, right so many things in different jurisdictions that one of these courts is going to eat those whole going thing to have to. all the way to the end and then that's exactly that's right going
0: and and that's you know that's something too is like how many times do you and I Ed, report what we have when we know what we have is not the whole story in part because we'd like to see what happens when what what we know is out there in public and how it changes the narrative and the and and how it sort of moves the ball on the whole and don't you consider each of those incremental reports to be a kind of a progress Oh, I think everything we publish is progress. <laughs> My point is that the first time you set out to run a marathon, you may not finish, but it's progress towards the goal of finishing a marathon.
1: Criminal investigations that show criminal activity that don't lead to criminal prosecutions are scandal, news. but they're
0: but they're but they're but they may well be a step in the right direction. In any case, I don't think that will be the case here, because some there has somebody has to be the lamb on the spit for this one, or else uh, money fall in the Italian year, banking regulators and the international anti-money laundering organizations are going to
1: just shut the Vatican City State out, and that is going to have implications that are really serious. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would literally turn the credit card machines off in the Vatican Museums, which after the year they've had with the Vatican Museums closed and knowing what we do about how vital they are to the Vatican City's revenue, if you basically turned off all the ATMs and credit card machines in Vatican City just as they were trying to reopen, it could make the Holy See bankrupt.
0: Which is why I think we will indeed get all the way over the marathon finish line in one way or another not even knowing yet which marathon we're going to finish.
1: That's true. Now, yeah. I, I know, where are we Where are we on time, J.D.? I don't want to... We actually have to wrap this up, my friend. No, 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 but we, I want to do Cece Maragna. Just for yeah, let's bit. talk about Cece. I sent you an interview she gave with Italian television uh, so over So Cece Maragna, just as
0: a reminder for those who don't remember, is uh, a person who is accused of, of... No, a person who is admitted essentially to serving as a private... As the gateway to a private intelligence network for Cardinal bechu that she was essentially doing sort of black off the books gray ops um, for for the Church in parts of the world where the Church isn't free to operate. But what it seems like she was actually doing is a lot of a, um, a, a lot of intelligence gathering for Cardinal Bessio, and at least uh, according to her recent indictment in was it Slovenia or Slovakia, Slovenia, and, Slovenia, and Vatican City, and Vatican City money laundering, money laundering so, embezzlement.
1: Theft, so what's up with of... Cece? Oh, yeah. So you sent me an interview with, with Cece. She's a fascinating character, J.D. I understand oh, yeah. why you like her. Um, <laughs> she, so uh, she, she she is... <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to try and get through this with a straight face. Um, she came into Cardinal Bechu's orbit when Cardinal Bechu was Archbishop Bechu and substitute of the Secretary of State. She, um, according to the narrative... She's given. Uh, She wrote to him cold, offering her services as a geopolitical uh, analyst and security consultant. And Cardinal Betchu, having never met or heard of her before, apparently said, Sure, that sounds like a great idea. Please. Mm -hmm. Um, She has referred to herself. Uh, in the interview that I sent you, they, the the Italian journalist in question who was interviewing said, you've described yourself as a geopolitical analyst and security consultant. How did you come by this expertise? And she said, I'm self-taught. Yeah. Um, and and um, flashed what I can only call a look with the glint of the ancient mariner in her eyes as she <laughs> said so. Um, Uh, It was compelling viewing. She also claims to have acted as a liaison between the Vatican and the Italian secret services and the intelligence services of other foreign jurisdictions, raising immediate comparisons with La Femme Sexa Bomba, as the Italian media Mm -hmm. dubbed Francesca Ciacocchi in the Vatican Geeks Trial. Um, It's it's a wild ride, buddy. And um, she has, as you say, acted as, as she herself has said, a kind of spy for... Cardinal bet you, mm-hmm. um, she seems to have seen at least enough James Bond films to think that this status requires her to stay in five star hotels all over the right. world, and um, buy designer bags. Which she says are gifts. A lot of designer stuff. handbags. A yep. lot. Um, and and doing all of this uh, through her slovenia registered company, into which the Secretary of State was funneling hundreds of thousands of euros for her expertise um again you 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 are fascinated with this person as am i although she makes me kind of mad because if i had known you could get a gig as a spy for the vatican just by writing off to cardinal betchu with you know five cereal box tops or something and they just (laughs) chuck a half a million at you to get you started and say go for it big boy i I, who wouldn't want that job i you know god it sounds great but anyway She's uh, she's the Vatican prosecutor says a trial for her is imminent, whatever that means in Vatican prosecutor language. Uh, <laughs> but she's uh, she's also, as uh, as was demonstrated in this TV interview, heavily involved in Italian Freemasonry. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to elaborate further on that, but you know, you can't if...
0: elaborate free li- further on it because much as I would like to delve into CC Moragna and Italian Freemasonry or anything, all topics CC Moragna really. It's late Thursday afternoon, which, buddy, I know means one thing for you. You've got to do something. I have to write my newsletter for tomorrow. You have to write your newsletter. So one thing about being here at the Pillar is that Ed and I both wait. I don't, if you listen to this podcast, you probably also subscribe to our our newsletter, and thank you for doing so. We're extremely grateful. If you don't subscribe, you should go in to pillarcatholic.com and subscribe. But, you know, I, I send out this newsletter on Tuesday, Ed sends out this newsletter on Friday, and both of us tend to wait until I, 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 the 11th hour and a half to write ours and both of our wives frequently say to us well why don't you just write it during the week and work on it a little bit ahead of time so that you don't have to sort of work 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 at the 11th hour but i don't know about you ed i can't do it any other way
1: uh no it's not it's it's not physically possible because i don't know what i'm writing about until the day's news is in for thursday right
0: exactly plus i have to be like really really under the gun or i just i don't know i just can't it's 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 funny there i the, the newsletter is one of the harder things for me to write. I like our newsletters a lot, but they're one of the harder things for me to write. Period. Oh, I'd so... kill to be
1: able to write my newsletter uh, across a Thursday afternoon or on a Friday morning. It'd be great. But I, you know, if it's going it go to yeah, go out Friday morning, I have to write it after close of play on Thursday. And I also have a, a wife to feed and water of an evening, which means I usually write the newsletter between the hours of 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. It's just. And then, he sends,
0: and then he sends it to me and says, don't look at it right away. When I think, "Ah, oh, I got to look at it right away. So I. That's it's I true. Says, Why are you looking at your phone? I gotta read as newsletter. Okay, go ahead. All right. Well, uh so then unless we unless there's anything else or unless you have a game, we probably uh, are gonna call it up.
1: I JD That was a transition that I gave to you. That was my thing. Here you go. I understand, but I, I don't have a game, but really after after getting to talk about Chichile Moragna, I feel like are you not entertained? <laughs> I not? Sure, I am. I just I, The only reason I tossed that transition out is I thought we might have a
0: game. But if we don't have a game, we don't have a I game. I have a game. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, next week, friends, we'll have a game. And check out tomorrow's newsletter. Well, today, well, we're recording this on Thursday. Ed's going to write his newsletter. There's something cool that Ed and I are doing next week. If you like the podcast, you'll like it. So check out Ed's newsletter of Friday, the 16th of April. Ed, God bless you, my friend. Yep. And uh, thanks for having me. All right. <laughs> the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd join i'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief jd flynn and i'm joined by my podcasting partner an equal contributor uh, to this our podcast ed condon and we'll be back next week we'll have things we want to talk about you will
1: too. i choked hard on that sign off jd i apologize but I, I was i don't know is there a thing that they say at the end of every law and order episode like is there a you know the more you know, know. no
0: there's not a thing that they say at the end of every law and order episode